super bear. Yes, yes, yes. The famed super bear now. Or supper bear, as some have called him. <laughs> supper bear. Good plum morning. Yes. And do you say it back to me? Oh, okay. Is that right? Yes. No? Yes. All right. Where I come from, you greet the crowd and the crowd greets you back. You want to try that? No? No? Thank you. Thank you, Phil. There's always somebody who's willing to do it. Everybody else lets you down. That's it. Let's try this one. You were, you're the early applauder, too, aren't you? All right, all right, all right, all right. Daba Namona? What would you say, Phil? Dabai? Dabai? Namona. Ah, there we go. All right, how about this one? Uh, are we? Ah, uh, um, and where I come from, good morning, y'all. Oh, there it is. All right. You ever made a bad decision, a decision you regret, and you're like, what in the world was I thinking? How could I do something so absolutely absurd? Um, I have a video for you this morning. Acacia, is that going to work for us? Acacia's going to play a video of one of the worst decisions I've made in my entire life. The good thing is they recorded it on video. So I get to come here and say, hey, you make bad decisions, I make bad decisions. Um, where I was at was South Africa, and this is the Blaukrans Bridge. It is the highest bungee jumping bridge in the world. And I happened to be there with a very, very good friend of mine who said, jump off this bridge. Um, and so, as you'll see, as you see, I was not shoved, I made the decision myself, um, but I've got a one minute video, Acacia, when you're ready, you, you let them see my worst decision I've made. Oh. oh, my knees just went weak watching it again. What was I thinking? No, no, no. How many of you would do that? You'd say, I'd jump off that bridge too. Oh, you're insane. You are crazy. All right, we know who the crazy campers are. I'm positive Super Bear would jump off the bridge. I mean, like without a doubt, he would, he would just yeet himself right off. Um, but I thought to myself, they're going to make a video. I might as well make it look good. But on the inside, I was like, what am I doing? 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 So then you're like, yeah! And on the inside, I was like, <laughs> Like right now, you, you don't know this, but my hands are, are wet with sweat. I just got so nervous watching me jump off of a bridge. Yeah, it was, it was so terrible. Bad decisions. I will tell you, don't do it. Unless you really want to, and then go do it. And it's really fun. It's so much fun. But then also, like, done it once, never to need to do it ever again. Um, there's bad decisions. As we come this morning, we're going to come to Job. I want you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Job 2. Job 2. Oh, man. Oh, man, my stomach's queasy now. I didn't even think about what I'd do to myself by watching that silly video. All right, Job 2. We're going to be back in the story of Job this morning. And we're going to see the story continue to develop and hear... You'll have a few of Job's friends show up, and, and they at first make a good decision, and then they, like me, jump off the bridge. They make some bad decisions. We'll see that unfold in just a second. But we'll get to Job 2. If you remember, Job is right before Psalms. So if you found Psalms, go one book before it, and you're in Job. And we'll be at the very beginning again, Job chapter 2. And just before we study God's word, let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you even as we saw last night that you're a compassionate Father who loves all of his children. Those whose lives they've made a wreck of. Those who think they're better than others. We thank you that in your compassion you always call us back to yourself. That no matter how many mistakes, no matter how many foolish decisions we make, you're there as a loving Father to accept us back and forgive us. This morning as we study your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to understand. May your spirit teach us the habit, the holy habit of holding our tongues, perhaps as we see others suffer. And teach us the holy habit of trusting in you, even in the midst of our suffering. Bless us now as we study your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We said yesterday that Job starts the story in Job 1, and if you remember, he's the goat. Who remembers what goat means? That's right, greatest of all time. He's the goat of the Near East. He's the man who has everything. Everybody wants to be Job. We said the goat turned broke. He lost everything. He has nothing left except for his supportive wife, and his physical body, his health. Everything else has been taken from him through the work of Satan, through the Sabians, through wildfire, through a band of Chaldeans. But by the hand of God, things had been taken from him. What we see when we get to chapter 2, we said there was Job's life, kind of the on-the-ground view of what was happening in chapter 1. Then we said we pull back in the story and we go beyond the clouds to another setting. Up in heaven we see here this vision of God and the angels come to God and Satan comes not as an equal with God. He's not even able to do anything apart from the permission of God. God's in control of all things. Now when we start chapter 2, you find we've pulled back behind the clouds again. Out of Job's hard, most miserable day, now beyond the clouds. Chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, that's the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in, all, in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? Do you notice Job, Satan? That's what he just did. You see him there? And still he holds fast his integrity, although thou movest, movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. You see here, as we pull back to the scene, again, notice, it's not Satan coming and making threats to God and God going, oh, no, Satan. Satan is God's lapdog. He is merely able to only do the things that God allows and permits him to do. And what you see even God describe in verse 3, look at verse 3. Remember when Job had said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? When God is talking to Satan, when Yahweh is... foolishly when he said the Lord takes. God now says, you move me against him to destroy him without cause. God's still claiming to be the one in control, even in the worst day in Job's life. God's not hiding from that reality. God's not afraid that somebody might get the wrong idea about who he is and how he works. I did that in Job's life. And you, 
wanted me to. And I also wanted to. I chose to do this. And at the end of it, look what Job did. He held fast his integrity. Job's faith did not crumple under the weight of suffering. Job's weight, Job's faith bore under the weight of his heartache and his heartbreak. Remember, as he hears the bad news, Job had fallen on his face and worshipped God. Blessed be the name of the Lord, not cursed. You find here, you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. The Lord took away. But Satan goes, come on. Like, like anybody would give all their stuff to stay alive. To keep his health. They'd give up everything. This is 100% truth. Like, this is the reality of human existence. There are those who make millions and billions and billions of dollars. There are wealthy billionaires the world over. And you hear stories of how that one of them will get cancer, they'll get sick, an incurable disease. And what will they do? Their stuff doesn't matter anymore. They'll sell everything they can. They'll get rid of all their stuff if they could just get their health back, if they could just save their life. And Satan's point is, people will give up everything if you, if you get to keep your life. Of course Job's still following you. He got to keep his life and his health. And even his wife will see in this text. But, Satan says, if you make him sick, make him sick, and he'll certainly curse you, verse 5, to your face. And so verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, the almighty and personal God, says to Satan, Behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. Go ahead. Take his health, but save his life. Verse 7, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown, that's the top of his head. And he, Job, took him a potsherd, that's a broken piece of clay pot, a potsherd to scrape himself withal. And he sat down among the ashes, the ashes of his burned up crops, the ashes of his burned up house, the ashes of his burned up sheep and servants. He sat in the ashes. You find here that by the permission of God, Satan sweeps into Job's life to take now the one thing Job had left, his health. It describes here a health condition that's described as boils from the sole of his feet, the bottom of your feet that you walk on, to the top of his head. His whole body is afflicted with this sickness. There's an ancient sickness that dates back to this era that still exists in the world today. We've sought to eradicate it, and it's almost completely gone, and for a while we thought it was gone, but still cases of it pop up. It's a disease called smallpox. Pox is the word for boil. Smallpox starts off like this. You get sick. You have this high, hot fever that comes on. Excruciating headache as the virus starts to reproduce inside your bloodstream. And this smallpox dates back to the Middle East. Sounds a lot like this disease. Because after that headache appears and that burning fever appears, inside of your digestive tract, from the front of your digestive tract to the back of your digestive tract. All the way the food goes, every mucous membrane begins to get little tiny red dots, like polka dots in your mouth and down your throat and through your gut and out the back. Polka dot red dots. And the cells around those red dots where the viruses start to die and break down. And those little red dots turn into blisters and fill up with pus. And inside all your mouth, inside all your nose, and down your throat, blisters. 
The mouth swells up with infection immediately. You can hardly talk without blood and pus drooling out your mouth. At the same time that the pus starts to build in your mouth, red dots start to appear across your skin over your whole body. It starts especially anywhere your skin touches skin. So your joints, your armpits, red dots right on the nerve endings, burning pain. And so those with smallpox, you find them laying in their beds like this because they don't want to move and they don't want to touch. And those red dots grow into blisters and often those blisters will connect and form entire sections where the skin separates from the body underneath. And pus is oozing out from head to toe, from their mouth and nose, across their faces, across their eyes, as their eyes swell shut. Many of these with smallpox often laying their mouths and faces swollen to where they can't even hardly talk. They can't move because they're in so much pain. We describe Job here. Old, shaved head, poor Job. And with all of this sickness comes vomiting and diarrhea. Job, sitting in the midst of everything that's been lost, now it's just ashes. And now his whole body, from head to toe, covered in boils, blisters. His eyes swollen shut. His mouth swollen and gaping open. Right before this had happened, Job had just lost everything, and what had he done? He worshipped with that mouth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that mouth is now swollen shut. He can hardly talk. Those eyes that the last thing they saw were ten caskets and burned property and slaughtered servants are now swollen shut. Job sits with nothing, not even his health. Satan has taken him to the verge of death, nearly making him wish he was dead. How bad is it? Well, notice the person who in his life probably loved him more than anybody else on the planet. Notice what she says to Job with his body covered in sores and pus and his eyes swollen shut and his mouth filled with blisters. He may have lost his health, but he still has his support of life, right? Verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? You're still, you're still trusting in your God? Are you out of your mind? Our kids are dead. We've lost everything. And look at you. Notice what she says, verse 9. Curse God and die. I don't know why you're holding on and trying to stay alive. There's nothing left to live for, Job. But he said unto her, this is not articulate. This is through a mouth swollen with blisters and sores. He says to her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Evil there means calamity. So we expect that life is only going to be positive, happy moments, and we don't expect that by the hand of God we might find hard and difficult moments. That's what he just said. In all this, did not Job sin with his lips? He's not falsely accusing God. What you see here in the story of Job is that Job is 
in this raft. He's now pushed away from sea. It seems like he's on this raft floating in the sea. He's out here by himself. It seems like he's lost everything. But at least in the boat is his wife. She's along with him. But when he loses his health, it's like she's like, I'm done. She jumps in the water and swims back to shore. Like, I, you're on your own now. Job is a man completely alone, devoid of all physical comforts in his health and even the comfort of those nearest to him. His wife looking at him saying, just give up and die. You see how dark the story has gotten. Job has lost his possessions and his health and his family. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. The three friends arrive, their hearts are broken. It says that as they look off in the distance, his property doesn't look like they remember it. Everything's torched, burned to the ground. And in the middle of it, this shaved head, boil-covered figure of a man. Is that Job? That can't be Job. No servants there to attend to him. Job's now laying on the ground. And all he has is a broken piece of pot. That's all he could find as he gropes around in blindness. He's got something to just get the caked off sores. Just try to keep it going. Just try to survive. And his friends, when they spot him at a distance, it says, they begin weeping. Oh, Job. Oh, Job, what's happened, friend? We see these men, they're actually each individually very important men from their countries. They're dignitaries. They're the wise men of their regions. They've come now because they heard what happened to their friend Job, who was a notable man. And they've come to see him, and now they see him in a state they wouldn't wish on their worst enemy. Job's lost everything, and as they approach, you see their hearts are broken. But if you notice also verse 13, Job is weeping grieving. Can you picture him? He's just hurt so bad he just lays in the ashes and he just sobs. I don't know why. I don't know why I've lost them all. Oh God, I, I still trust you, but, but I don't understand. Oh God, it's, it's so terrible. Oh God, God, she's left me now. She's lost her, my wife has lost her faith. God, oh, restore her faith to her, God. is broken into a million pieces. And his friends come and they can't interrupt. What, are they going to talk over his grieving? They're going to talk over his tears? And it says they sat down. They just come near to their friend while he lays there and boils and ashes. I don't know if it's contagious or not. Let's stay over here, fellas. Job, it's us. We're here with you, friend. And it says they weep with him. They cry and cry and cry and cry for seven days. What's, what's happened in Job's life breaks their hearts too. It's so tragic that not only Job feels the weight of it, the people around him can't help but see and go, oh my goodness, what has happened in your life? None of them have seen beyond the clouds to know that there's a mighty God who's in control of all things. All they can see right now is absolute ruin and devastation in their friend's life. And to them, it looks like the worst story that could ever happen to a human. I'm reminded by their response here that when they showed up, 
they actually had, look at me, they had the exact right response when they first showed up. What'd they say? Nothing. I was reminded a friend said it this way. He said, when you see someone grieving, don't just do something. Stand there. It's backwards of what we always think. Don't just stand there, do something. No, 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 no. When you see someone overwhelmed by sorrow and grief, and some of you may not be experiencing grief in your life, but somebody near you, their heart is breaking into a thousand pieces, and you see it, and you go, I don't know what to do. I want to love them with the love of Jesus. I want to show them the compassion of Christ. I'm not sure what to say right now. I'm not sure how to help them. Like, they just told me this really, really heavy thing in their life, and I can't, I can't believe it. I want to cry. My heart is crushed by it. Don't just do something. Stand there. Weep with those who weep. We would call it a ministry, not of words, but of tears. Reminded of a young man, a friend of mine. He got in his car, and he was leaving church. He was driving. He was learning how to drive, and so his mother sat in the front seat and his father sat in the back seat as they left the church. They headed down the road from our church, said goodbye to them, have a good night. They turned on the main highway, and as they accelerated, on the side of the road was a man working on his truck that had broken down. And while he's working, turned his back, and the tire he had just taken off of his truck just rolled right out in the road in front of Jonathan as he speeds down the road. The last second, Jonathan sees the tire, and he turns the wheel, and he says he doesn't remember anything else that happened. The police investigation later on says he flipped six or seven times the vehicle down the highway until it was stopped by a giant sign as it made impact. In the impact, Jonathan was injured, Jonathan's mother was killed instantly. Jonathan's father in the back seat, the way he hit, it crushed his hips in and broke his legs all the way down. I got a phone call that said Jonathan was just in an accident. His mom was killed and his dad, they're not sure if he's going to make it. And I was Jonathan's pastor. I said, can you come to the hospital and be with Jonathan? They think he's going to wake up soon. I remember coming into the room and his older sister had just talked to him and let him know that mom just passed away. Mom's no longer here. The news hitting Jonathan as I walked into the room, I watched, Jonathan was 17 years old, I watched as he realized he was never going to say goodbye to his mother again. And all that's settling into his mind and his heart. And he's just sobbing and broken, and his body's all scraped up, he's bruised all over, and as reality's settling into his heart, what are you going to say to somebody like that? So I just walk up to Jonathan, and I just grab his hand and say, can I hold your hand, bud? Yeah. And we just cried. We just wept and wept and wept. I'm so sorry. here. I'm so sorry. And we just cry, cry, cry. The moment when someone around you is hurting, that's actually the right response. You don't have to have the perfect word to speak in that moment. There'll be more moments to work through that, to talk through that, to counsel through that. There'll be moments where we can speak of the hand of God, where we can speak of God's work in their life, of how they can trust God. In that moment, often the right response will be, just weep. Just hold them. Just sit with them. Don't just do something. Stand there. I remember a video I saw recently. I saw it on TikTok. You know TikTok. It's the best thing TikTok ever did, this one video. 
There's a video, and what it was is it was a video from a security camera at someone's home. And this girl is standing in the front yard. She's a teen girl. And you can see from her, her body that she's just really upset. And she's just a little bit frustrated. And finally, she just lays down on the ground. And you can see she's crying as she lays on the ground. I don't know the backstory. I don't know why she's crying. She's just laying on the ground in front of her house, crying. Within about 10 seconds, comes rushing in her friend in a car, puts the car in park, and hops out and runs over to her and lays down next to her on the ground and grabs her hand and starts crying with her. That was the most beautiful picture of what you do. Like, get up, stop crying. No! The ministry of tears. Weep with those who weep, the scriptures say. What you find here, his friends came, and at first they did the right thing. They think in terms of Job's suffering. They don't have yet the wisdom and the words to form even to help him manage through the suffering. They're going to bear a little bit of the weight of his suffering by sharing that suffering in their own hearts and crying with their friend and grieving with their friends. His friends arrive. Good. His friends grieve with him. Good. But after seven days, his friends begin to talk and try to diagnose what's wrong in Job's life. Bad. You find these friends, the three named already, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Each of them build on one another with the bad ideas that they think suffering in Job's life has come from. We start in Job chapter 4. Look over at chapter 4. This is Eliphaz, Job 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, this is his explanation. The next couple of chapters is Eliphaz describing to Job, Job, I think I know why everything's gone wrong in your life. I think I've figured out why you just had the worst day ever. Job, I've been sitting here for a week. I've looked at your whole estate. I've seen your body. I understand what's happened. I saw how your wife left you, and now I know. Okay, I've, I've got it figured out. I've diagnosed the situation. Let me help you, Job. He probably would have done well to just keep crying and sitting silent. But Eliphaz, or as I like to call him, Eliphael, talks. If this is now Job, chapter 4. Look down at verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, this is Eliphaz speaking, remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Job, as I look at your life, this is going to be a hard truth, but sometimes love says the hard things. Listen closely, Job. As I see how bad things have gone, I've got to tell you, in my life, bad things happen to bad people. Like you've lost everything? I think it's a little time for some introspection, Job. You need to think through your life and figure out, what are all the sins in that heart of yours, Job? What are the secret things? Like we all saw you as a righteous man. But clearly, God knows, and he's now sent punishment on you because of your iniquity, your sin. You've been out there, he uses a metaphor from farming, you've been out there plowing fields of sinfulness, and now you're reaping the harvest of punishment for your sins. In Eliphaz's mind, Eliphaz's bad theology is this, bad things only happen to bad people. That's his words of comfort to Job in the midst of his suffering. So that you find now, this is a unique piece of the story. We thought Job's suffering was done. He lost everything, he lost his health, but at least he had his friends. Nope. Job will now experience mental torment and torture as people around him begin accusing him falsely of a corrupt life 
Do you like it when people look at you and go, oh, I know you did this. Like, I didn't do that. Yes, you did. No, I, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. You're just defending yourself. Ah, like, no, I just didn't do it. Like, why are you saying I did it? Job's going to have three wise men from the ancient world come, and they're, with all of their oratory skills, going to try to explain to Job why he's receiving punishment, why this is actually bad things happening to him because he's a bad person. There are plenty of people who, in the midst of seeing people suffering, go exactly here every time. Why did it go bad? Probably got something secret in their life that's causing it to go bad right now. Hmm. God's probably getting them. Yeah. Bad things happen to bad people is Eliphaz's terrible theology. You know, some people do bad things and it costs them. Thank you, Eliphaz. Job 5. Look at Job 5. Verse 17. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. For he makes sore and binds up. He wounds and his hands make whole. God's doing this. True. God has allowed this. And you should be thankful, Job, that he's punishing your evil. He's punishing you for your, for your sins. And this is Eliphaz's answer. This is the answer many people give. This is the broken answer that he comes along with. Bad things happen to bad people. And you know what? You should be thankful that God's punishing you. Suck it up, buttercup. And you know what? You lost everything, but you probably deserved it. Thanks, friend. That's the first set of bad ideas. The second comes from his friend, Bildad, who I like to call Bill Dud. Verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite with his failure of theology as well. Verse 2, how long, Bildad says, how long wilt thou speak these things, and how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? You're just blowing a bunch of hot air, Job. Stop talking and start listening. Does God pervert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your children have sinned against him, and he has cast them away for their transgression, if you would seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Bildad picks up where Eliphael leaves off. And he says, bad things happen to bad people. And now here's what, here's what Bildad says. He says, and so if you turn from your sin, God would fix it all. Like actually, if you were a good person, God would give you all the stuff back. You need to become a good person. And, and actually, Job, you know what? He, he throws this in there. Your kids are dead. Yeah, we all know. All right, we've heard you crying. It's been a week. You've been weeping about your dead kids. Do you know why God kills people, Job? Because of their sin. Your kids are dead because they sinned. It makes me want to gag. Talk about bad decisions. This guy's mouth spewing out so much foolishness. His theology is similar. Bad things happen to bad people, so do good, and then good things will happen to you. You want things to turn around for you, Job? You should probably start making better choices in life. You probably start living right, and God will sort it all out for you. Thanks, Bill Dud. Zophar, chapter 11. Chapter 11. Zophar is so far off base that as he regurgitates their vomit, their terrible ideas, he just compounds the problem. Job 11, verse 1. Then answered Zophar the Namathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace, and when thou mockest shall no man make thee ashamed? 
for thou hast said, my doctrine is pure. Job's been defending himself through this whole thing. As they would speak, he would say, but I don't know of any sin in my life. I hate evil. I love God. I've tried to maintain my faith in God. And they would say, no, you clearly have sin. That's why bad things are happening, because bad things happen to bad people. If you were doing good, then good things would happen. And as Job's been defending, they're now going, stop talking, stop defending. For you have said, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. That he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacts of thee less than thine iniquity deserves. Not just bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Zophar does this. You think it's bad now, Job? <laughs> it should be worse. That's what he just said. More than what's happened. That's what verse 6 just said. Like, like, what else could possibly happen to Job? It's like, huh. You still have those three servants that came and reported to you. They should probably be taken away from you, too. You should probably, like, lose a leg, too. Like, like it, it should be worse. Job, here's some comfort. Find this. It could be worse. Oh, you should be happy because you probably deserve worse than you got. All the different ways that they try to speak to Job to help his eyes open to the truth. Here, verse 13, chapter 11, verse 13, you see Zophar harmonizes his bad counsel with the bad counsel of the other two. Verse 13. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward God, toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles, your tents, for then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. You'll get rid of all your boils if you just live right. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as waters that pass away. We have an expression back home, water off a duck's back. You'll be able to just get over it. If you just turn to whatever secret sins you have that God's judging you for, then you'll just get over all this suffering. It just won't mean anything. Like water off a duck's back. Again, you hear the echo of these three, Eliphael, Bildud, and so far from the truth. With friends like this, attacking Job, compounding his suffering by their horrible accusations. With friends like this, who needs enemies? With theologically ignorant men like this, speaking into moments of suffering, who needs any more suffering? I'll tell you, there are friends around you, look at me, who in the midst of your suffering might be saying things similar, don't become discouraged by their false accusations. Don't become disturbed by their crazy theories of what suffering is in your life. Learn from who God is and how God is about your suffering. You find here that for them, they think that bad things happen to bad th people and good things happen to good people. Listen, listen. That's not Christianity. That's a thing called karma. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's karma, not Christianity. Well, if I do good, then good will happen. I do bad, bad will happen. What you find here in this text is that there are multiple people in the world who do evil and have a heap load of money and property. And if you search through the history of the world, let's find the most sinless person who ever lived. What's his name? Jesus. Did he have any bad days? Christianity is not karma. It's not about bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. The grace and compassion of God comes into our lives and to bad people he offers good things that we don't deserve. That's called grace. 
And those who are following after him in this life will often find suffering because this world is broken and they hated Jesus. Don't be surprised if they hate you too. Don't be surprised that because of the fall of Adam and Eve, your heart will break. You'll feel aches in your life. Turn to the end of Job. Job chapter 42. We know for sure that their counsel was wrong because here in the text it's included to make sure we know that what they were saying all along, these three guys, Eliphael, Bildud, and so far from the truth, we understand they're saying the wrong things because God shows up and he goes, listen here, they're wrong. That's what this is. Job 42, last chapter of the book, verse 7. It was so that after the Lord had spoken words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore, take unto you now seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job... The one who you've been saying is evil and wrong? My servant Job will pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Your theory that bad things only happen to bad people and good things happen to good people is so far from my character and who I am. You think of me all the wrong ways. You've described me to Job with all the wrong ideas. You paint me as though I'm a, a fairy godmother sitting up in heaven saying, Oh, I like Cinderella. She seems right. Oh, evil stepsisters. Time to get you. That somehow God is this big, mean ogre up in heaven who is hating people as he sees them under him. Stop painting false pictures of me with your words. You're wrong. Repent of your sin. Let's say, how can we know what God's doing then when it comes to suffering? To presume that pain and suffering in your life is simply God up there with a billy club knocking you over the head saying, oh, how dare you? H how do we understand pain and suffering then? We'll speak even more of this tomorrow, but today as we finish, let me give you some words of encouragement. If I want to understand pain and suffering, the clearest place to look is at the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I look at Jesus dying on the cross, was Jesus suffering because he had done evil? No. By the wisdom, by the wise and perfect plan of God, Jesus finds himself willingly on the cross bearing punishment. Before that, Jesus finds himself rejected and abused, mocked and spit upon. Because Jesus was evil? No. Because Jesus was a sinner? No. Jesus offers himself in the place of sinners. Perfectly poised, the sinless one of the world suffered by the wisdom of God. Why? Because through his suffering, he would accomplish the greatest thing that ever happened for humanity. God had a wise plan to use the suffering of Jesus to save mankind. Suffering was not pointless, it was accomplishing salvation. You find here that when we look at the gospel, God is big enough and strong enough to use the most terrible moments in human history for eternally good purposes. That through the cross of Jesus, redemption of mankind becomes the offer. We know that suffering can happen to good people because Jesus was sinlessly perfect. And when we read through the rest of the New Testament, we find one martyr after another who gave their lives in service of Jesus, losing property, losing their freedom, put in prison and in chains, many of them losing their lives because, because God was punishing them? No. 
not because he was punishing them, but because God was accomplishing something unbelievably awesome through their suffering. Take Paul and put him in Philippi. Beaten and put in prison. Why? I mean, he was just there to preach the gospel. Why would you do this, God? To your preacher, threatening him with death. And through the night, he and his friend Silas sing hymns together. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. As his back is bloodied, his body is bruised, I trust you, Lord. And in the middle of the night, while everybody else is asleep, a massive earthquake hits, his shackles are broken, the doors are open, it's his chance to run for freedom from suffering. As he steps out, the prison guard who likely had been abusing him earlier that day is standing there ready to take his own life. And he looks at the suicidal prison guard and goes, stop, 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 stop. Don't do that. Your eternal soul is too precious to take right now. And he shares the gospel from a prison cell to this man. The man says, come to my house, we'll clean you up, we'll care for you. And God plants a church in Philippi by Paul's suffering in prison. That hard moments in life are not meaningless moments, but that a wise God who's big enough to be in control over all things is working behind the clouds, making sure that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He has not lost control. He has no oopsies when your heart breaks. And so friends, you go, what do I do with this suffering and pain in my life? Trust that the God beyond the clouds is in control and he's working things. Things you may not comprehend yet. But because he is good, because he is wise, because he is loving, they are good things. Some of them in this life you may see the end of. You may finally understand the why. A lot of them, you'll just have to hold fast your integrity and trust the Father and say, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know beyond the clouds you're working things and doing things. I know it doesn't have to necessarily be punishment. I, I can't even think of why this would be punishment. I'm your child. I think you love me. Why is suffering come? He must be a wise and good father who's working out something I can't see behind the clouds. And we trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're big enough to hold all the hard answers. We thank you that you're wise enough and good enough that no matter what comes in this life, we don't have to wonder whether or not it'll work out for good, we can be confident and hold to you. Please continue to teach us to trust in you, even in the moments of unknown. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.